0: So I'm going to read John chapter 17. I'm going to begin at verse 13 down to verse 20. The operative verse will be verse 17. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now, you'll notice here tonight several verses that deal with the word. Notice he says in verse 13, these things I speak in the world as Jesus speaking the word of God. And then you see it in verse 14. I have given them your word. And then also... You see in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then also we see here in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Jesus here in the high priestly prayer is mentioning the word of the scriptures and the word of God, which are all the same, uh, multiple times in this prayer. This afternoon I picked off my shelf knowing that I was going to preach on this uh, book by BB Warfield, who I mentioned uh, this morning, he was the one that I said, you know, rotten wood you cannot split. BB Warfield was a professor at uh, of systematic theology at Princeton Seminary in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and BB Warfield had a paragraph in his book on inspiration and the Bible that really caught my attention. Where he says, uh, imagine for a moment a world where God in his providence did not give us a Bible, but he did everything that was in the Bible. That is, uh, imagine that God did what happened in the garden and and then you know raised up Moses and raised up David and raised up the prophets, and then in the fullness of time does send Jesus into the world and Jesus dies uh, uh, on the cross. He is bodily raised from the dead and ascends back to the Father. But all you have is just some kind of oral tradition that's just passed on that you don't have the Bible. And he said um he speculated that you end up you would not have Christianity. That that the preservation of the church is really dependent under God's grace uh working through the Bible. Um, He said where where would we be um if if Luther didn't have the Bible? If if Luther couldn't look and judge what was going on in his day and call the church back to the scriptures. He would have nothing to appeal to. It's just that we, we, we've heard things, we heard these things, who heard these things, who heard these things on down. He said the, the gospel would almost be utterly eclipsed by um, traditions over time that would have crept in and, and nobody would really know what the truth was. And I really thought that was a great, a, part, a point to, to make here, that the Bible uh, is what sustains us in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible um, means, uh, young people, the book. So when we talk about the Holy Bible, we're talking about the Holy Book. Sometimes it's called the Holy Scripture. Sometimes it's referred to as the Word of God. It consists of 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And the best argument, I think, for the, being the Word of God um, is that Jesus Christ claimed it to be the very Word of God. Jesus relied on the Bible, though Jesus is the Word. John tells us in John chapter 1, Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we're told. But nevertheless, Jesus, um, as a man, he relied on the Bible, he grew in his. Knowledge of the Bible as a boy. He had to learn the Bible. Think about that. In his human nature, don't, remember what I said a few months ago, don't divinize his human nature. Don't let the deity slip in to his human nature, all right? Jesus had to learn. Jesus had to study. Just like you do. Jesus had to go to the temple. Jesus had to listen to sermons. Jesus had to read the scriptures uh, in order to grow in grace and knowledge and favor with men and God. When he's 12 years old, we see him where? He's at the temple. And, uh, you know, his parents are heading back home, and and they finally realize Jesus isn't among any of the relatives. They go back, and where is he? He's sitting there with the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees and talking about the scriptures with them. When Jesus was tempted at the uh, inauguration of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, each temptation... Was answered by Jesus with a quotation from the scripture. So when Jesus was in spiritual conflict with the devil, he didn't even rely on himself, but he relied on the scriptures as the answer to the temptation that the devil was giving him. Scripture was Jesus' authority in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 17 and 18. Uh, the word was authoritative for Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus said that the scriptures could not be broken. Jesus regarded the scriptures as true. Um, the scripture says that Jesus must go to the cross, must be fulfilled. Uh, and, 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 you know, how or why? Well, because he who inspired the scriptures also guided providence, and Jesus knew that. So Jesus knew that as the scriptures spoke of him, he knew his destiny. He knew that he would be going to suffer for the sins of God's people, according to Isaiah chapter 53. In Matthew 26, in verse 54, Jesus considered the whole Old Testament to be the very Word of God. You know, one of the reasons we as Protestants don't believe the Apocrypha to be equal with Scripture is that in Jesus' day, the Apocrypha wasn't recognized as Scripture. The Apocrypha existed. You realize the Apocrypha, Apocrypha books existed during the day of Christ. But Christ never appealed to the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha was not considered a part of the canon in Jesus' day. Uh, The the authors of the Apocrypha didn't recognize themselves as prophets. No New Testament author cites an Apocryphal book or quotes from it. So that's the reason that the the Reformation, we rejected the Apocryphal books um, as authoritative with the New Testament. So Jesus appealed to the Old Testament. Uh, That's what he had. He had Genesis through Malachi in his day. But that then leads us to the question, well then, how do we know if the New Testament is really the word of God? Because the New Testament is written after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have a lot of verses that indicate this. I'll give you six. First of all, John chapter 16 and verse 13. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples. That is, as he ascends to the Father, remember the upper room discourse, he breaks the sad news to his disciples that he's leaving. Okay? And the disciples are trying to process this information. And one of the encouragements that Jesus leaves his disciples is that it's better that I go. Because when I go to heaven and I go to be with the Father, the Father and I will send the Spirit and the Spirit will be with you and dwell in you, and the Spirit will guide you into all truth. So Jesus gives us this promise that the disciples and the apostles and who will become the bulk of the authors of, of this New Testament, what we call the New Testament, will be given the Spirit, and the Spirit will bring forth the Word of God through their ministry. Second Peter, secondly, Second Peter chapter one, verse 21, the Spirit we are told inspires the men who speak the word of God. Uh, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we have the promise of the Spirit. Then we have Peter asserting that the Spirit indeed inspired them, that the scriptures were not written simply by an act of human will and effort. But the Spirit guided these men as they wrote about the things of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we see that uh, Paul says to Timothy, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. But how does that prove that the New Testament is actually the Word of God? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 that there are wicked men who... Uh, will distort the writings of the scripture. Peter says that Paul's writings, some of which are difficult to understand, and that men will come and distort those writings, even as they do, and this is the key part, that they rest of the scriptures. So what Peter is saying is that Paul is writing authoritatively. Do you follow my argument here? P- Peter is, under the inspiration, is saying some of the doctrine that Paul teaches is hard. We know that, right? It's difficult to understand some, some parts of the Bible. And Peter says, because of the difficulties that we find in understanding the Scripture, it's sometimes easy for false teachers to come in and distort these difficult areas uh, and confuse the church. And he says, as they do the rest of the scripture. So what Peter is saying is that Paul's writings, Paul's doctrine is to be equated with scripture because he says that these false teachers are distorting the teachings of Paul as they do the rest of the Bible. So what does that mean that, that Peter's view of Paul's writings is? Peter is saying Paul's writing is equal to the Bible. That's, that, that's a, maybe a difficult argument. Maybe I didn't say it as concisely as I could, but that, that is the essence of it. Peter is saying Paul's writings are scripture. He said otherwise he wouldn't use that phrase the rest of the scriptures if, if he thought that Paul's writings were somehow distinct from the Bible. But he doesn't. He says Paul's writings are distorted just like they distort the rest of the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. So that is, when Paul came preaching, teaching, and writing, he said, you received what? He didn't say, when you, you know, you received what I said. He said, you received the word of God. In First Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul quotes a verse in, from the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, in verse 7. And the quotation is that the laborer is worthy of his wages. And uh, that is significant because Paul is essentially taking a quote that he got from Luke in Luke's Gospel and he is saying this is the word of God and he is applying it in the life of, of Timothy. So they even appealed, even at the earliest stages of the development of the scriptures and the canon, they were appealing to those letters and books that were circulating in that first century church and appealing to it as the word of God, as the Bible. The Bible is to be believed because the Lord says it is his word. We have to understand, think about it from this perspective, uh, young people. What, how does God prove any, anything? I mean, who does God appeal to to verify him. Yeah, himself. There, there's no higher authority, is there, than God. God is self-attestating. Um, and, and the scriptures say, you know, the witnesses are the Father and the Son and the Spirit. These three, you know, are bearing witness uh, that it is the word of God. Jesus makes this argument as well, that, that uh, the Father is a witness to what he is saying, is the word of God. We also, though, if you're just interested, we have the harmony of the Bible that is interesting, um, and, you know, I think helps um, as evidence that that it is the word of God, but we don't want to put it, you know, above the attestation of God himself, but nevertheless, think about this. You have 66 books, there are 36 different authors. It was written over 1,600 years. The oldest book being Job, up to, depends what you think the <laughs> newest book is. Some think it's Revelation, others think it's something else. Depends whether you think is written prior to 70 AD or do you think it's later written maybe in 90 AD. But anyway, 1,600 years. And amidst all that diversity, different authors, different cultures, You know, remember, some of these books are written in captivity. Um, And nevertheless, there is an underlying unity to the book. Uh, For example, you have the the prophecies of Isaiah. Um, Look at Isaiah chapter 7. These are very familiar. We think about some of these passages around Christmas time. But Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now that's written 700 years prior to the incarnation of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Prince of peace. Speaking of, again, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I think, really, that some of the most persuasive prophecies actually are found in Isaiah 53, where we deal with the death of Jesus. I, you know, I know these things are spiritually revealed, but it is it's really hard to read this chapter and not see Jesus so clearly in it. The, the, the detail that Isaiah speaks of here, of the Lord Jesus Christ and um, all that he would suffer on the cross, giving himself to atone for our sins. But let's just look at verse 5 for a second. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Um, You know, you look at verse 9, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea fulfilled that. Um, He poured out himself to death, we're told in, in verse 12 there. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. And we know that Jesus, you know, the Lamb of God, offered himself like a lamb to the cross. We also have, in addition to all of this, the testimony of the Spirit. The Spirit testifies to our hearts. Um, This is really, I think, what enables us to believe, even when we know very little of the Bible. If you think, those of you who were converted, either in adulthood or teenage years, maybe, um, you know this especially. How much of Christianity did you really know when you started to follow the Lord, compared to what you know now? It was very little, wasn't it? So you really went on a very little bit of information, didn't you? So it wasn't the amount of information that you had that persuaded you. What persuaded you? It was the Spirit and His ministry to your life, the power, the efficacy that you realized is, as you read the Scriptures and as you heard it preached. And, and you realized that it wasn't just really just the words of men. This was very different. There was, there was a different quality to this than what you had ever heard before. There was, there was an efficacy to it that you knew it to be the word of God. Jesus said that he is the good shepherd and the sheep hear my voice and they hearken and they follow after me. Um, in John chapter 20, uh, verse 30, uh, we're told that many other signs Jesus performed, but these, are not, uh, these weren't recorded uh, but the stuff that was recorded, he said that it was so that you would what? You would believe. So the scriptures were given to us, especially the gospels, that we would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 16, verse 31. We know that, um, that the message is the same in the old as it is in the new. Jesus said in Luke sixteen thirty-one, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So you see here that the, the Moses spoke with the same, really, efficacy as the New Testament writers. The Spirit of God spoke through them, and that's why, um, you know, in the, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and he's saying, you know, just go and you know, preach this to my brothers who are still living, and, and the answer came back, no, you know. They have the Bible. They have the Bible, and if they're not listening to the Bible... Then it doesn 't matter if they see a miracle. Um, this is why men could sit in the synagogue and they could see Jesus perform a a miracle on the Sabbath day and then they go outside out the front door and and plot how to kill Jesus because they saw a miracle, but what they weren 't believing the Bible that the, the faith was rested on the word of god the The, the miracles were but to confirm the scriptures um it was to testify to the veracity of what Jesus was saying. Also, the Spirit confirms uh, the Bible to be the Word of God. If you look at First Corinthians chapter two with me, First Corinthians chapter two, and uh, look at verses one through five. 1 Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five. And when I came to you, brethren. I did not come with superiority of speech. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, boys and girls. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Now, what is he talking about there? I didn't come with superior speech or wisdom. I think he's probably referring to the peripatetic teachers that went around the Greek world. And, you know, if you, you, for some money, they would give you some of the latest philosophy. And so Paul's saying, well, look, that's, that's not how we operate. He said, I didn't come to you with superior speech, that, that it, it wasn't an exercise in what they call sophistry, which was the Greek art of persuasion. Um, you know, lawyers do this. You know, they, they want to win the case. They're not so much concerned always with truth or not. But can they persuade the jury to believe their side of things? Um, and this, there was an art to this. The Greeks called it sophistry. And the sophists, you know, the, the, the art of rhetoric. So he said we didn't come with that superior speech or of wisdom uh, proclaiming to you. He said rather the testimony of God. He said I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he didn't try to show off. He didn't try to show them how smart he was. He tried to simply preach Jesus Christ faithfully. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, that is, I didn't try to do it like the Greek culture, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he is saying here that his preaching was uh, rested on the Spirit of God. Why? Because it was the Spirit who inspired the Word. And Paul's job was to preach the word, he said in verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on what? The power of God. Um, Jump down to verse 10. In the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? That is, who knows what you're thinking except you? Right? Speaking at a human level. We know God does, but no, nobody knows exactly all your thoughts except you. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, he says here. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And then notice verse 14 here. He says, but the natural man, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. This is why very smart people sometimes do not believe the Bible. People much smarter than you and me. People who have studied the Greek and the Hebrew, far more than you and me, and yet still don't believe. Why? Because they have a veil over their eyes. They spiritually cannot see the truth because the Bible is the word of God given by the Spirit of God, and if the Holy Spirit does not reveal that to an individual, then it doesn't seem really like this. it's the word of God. He says, for they are foolishness to him. That is, to the natural man, What we're doing here is utter foolishness. Gathering on church, wasting time. Looking at an old book that is full of errors, according to them. It's foolishness. It says that the natural man cannot understand the Bible, cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So Paul is saying here that the Spirit is confirming the Scriptures to be the Word of God. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord that will instruct him? And then Paul goes, but we have the mind of Christ. How do you have the mind of Christ? By the Spirit of God. The Spirit gives confirmation that the Bible is his Word, and he reveals that to us as the Word. The Bible teaches everything we have need to know of concerning God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. So everything that we need to know, at least for right now, until Jesus comes again, concerning the glory of God, the salvation of man, faith, and life, our catechism, our confession teaches that it is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So that the scripture is not only authoritative, but it is sufficient. It's sufficient for life, for faith, for doctrine, for teaching. Um, I, I've already quoted 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. The scripture is sufficient for teaching and training in righteousness, etc. The Bible also is the only revelation of God, and that is we don't need other books, such as the book of Mormon or other prophecies or revelations. Paul says, if anyone brings to you another gospel, let him be a curse. Paul, again, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 says, uh, he urges the congregation not to be shaken or troubled by another letter, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So you don't have to be worried when someone confronts you with a new religion, or a new doctrine, or a new tradition, whether it is from God or not. If it is not in the Bible, because if it's not coming from the Bible, then it's false. You know, I've told you all this story many, many years ago. I was living in the apartments on Harwell Avenue across from the library, where it's, which is under construction now, and behind my apartment building was the Mormon missionary house. Every summer, young people would come, and they would live in that Mormon missionary house, and they would fan out during the summer throughout different neighborhoods in LaGrange, trying to win converts, to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Well, because I lived in that vicinity, and I often was walking my dog around, you know, uh, every summer, you know, I lived there, I think, four summers. Uh, you know, it was like, oh, look, here's a guy. Let's go talk to him. And, uh, you know, they didn't know. I go through this every summer. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was ready for them. And uh, so they come up, and, and you know, they want to talk to me. I said, well, let's make an appointment. You know, come on over to my apartment. And so they do. One year, they... Two guys come over. So we're meeting in my living room, and um, I, wonder, I was curious about their presentation, so I let them do their spiel. You know, and they have a very set standard spiel that they have to give. And so they're giving it, and I let them finish. And I say, well, guys, um, and one of the things they, they try to emphasize to you is we're Christians like you. Okay, that's, that's really what the bulk of the next 15 minutes you're going to hear is. We're Christians like you, and, and here's what we believe. I said, guys, I already told you at the start, I'm a Christian. So if you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, why are you here? <laughs> and they said, oh, well, see, then they pull out the Book of Mormon. You know, that's when they say, okay, the reason we're here. And so they they then have to go to this uh, second authority of theirs. And um, so anyway, um, When you have a high view of the Bible, though, it it frees you up to be able to let things slide off of you, Um, these other beliefs and other worldviews. John Calvin, remember this series is, uh, what is Calvinism, (laughs) said that the the Bible is like a pair of uh, glasses, or Calvin called them spectacles, and he said that the glasses enable us to see and to evaluate the world around us. So that as you grow in your understanding of the Bible, you are better prepared to evaluate, uh, maybe as a college student, um, maybe uh, other things, uh, beyond uh, things in the realm of ideas, theories, presuppositions of professors, you'll see through those, what those presuppositions are more clearly, the better you know your Bible. The better uh, consumer of media you will be, the more you know the Bible. Uh, the, the better you'll be able, more discerning you'll be with regard to movies and books, the better you know the scriptures. Uh, because you'll see from where they're, uh, where they're coming from, where they're approaching, where is this worldview that they're getting. Is it consistent with the scriptures? Is it alien to the scriptures? Now, as I said earlier, not everything is expressly written in the scripture. There are some things that must be deduced. So, for example, I'll give you uh, one, the word Trinity, Trinity is not expressly found in the Bible as a term, but it is as a theological concept found in the Scriptures. Um, For example, we find in Matthew 28 that the disciples are told to go baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see that God is one, and yet he is revealed to us in three distinct ways persons. Some things are not set forth in Scripture. Um, They are left to the light of nature we're told. So for example, what time we meet for evening service is not necessarily set forth in the Scriptures. But we all know that 2 a.m. is probably not a great idea uh, except in days of persecution maybe. Um, I don't think we'll have too many people coming if I hold a service um, in uh, nine hours. So um, these things can, of course, be revealed by the, left to the light of nature. Also, we have to remember that not everything in the Bible is equally plain. Some portions of the Bible are easier than others to understand, and others' things are more difficult. And this, the Bible acknowledges, I already quoted you Second Peter 3.16, when Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said that some of the things Paul writes are difficult to understand. So that should be of encouragement to us. But the things that are necessary for salvation are sufficiently clear. Psalm 129, verse 105, and also verse 130. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So that the Bible acts really as a big flashlight for us. Um, we are, the psalmist goes on, he says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. The Bible aids your understanding and the direction that you need to go in. John chapter 5, verse 39. Search the scriptures, Jesus says, for in them you think you have eternal life. And then he he says, "They, uh, they are that which testify of me. Now we know that in the Old Testament, the Bible was not originally written in English, okay? You do have people who believe that the Bible was written in King James English. It was not. (laughs) It was written in Hebrew, and people in Jesus' day spoke Aramaic, um, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Probably the second most familiar language to the people of the Judea region would have been Greek. Um, And um, and yet these languages, not being known throughout the whole world, need to be translated. So th- w- there's where we do get the idea that the scriptures, this is, of course, you know, we, we accept this as axiomatic today, but listen, you, you're, you're a child of the Reformation. And that was not even, you know, that was definitely not the church's view 600 years ago. And you would get in a lot of trouble if you translated into the vernacular. So don't take your English Bible for granted. Uh, men gave their lives for that. One of the things we also have to remember when it comes to Scripture is when the, the, that whenever Scripture interprets another portion of the Bible, it does so infallibly. So when the New Testament, for example, cites an Old Testament prophecy, you have to understand that that, that citation is an infallible Interpretation of the prophecy. You may be reading, and you might be wondering, well, how did the apostle get that out of that prophecy, out of that verse? Um, and that's where you know we rely on, okay, this is inspired by God, and so it's true. So it's not for me to sit in judgment. Uh, it's rather for me to sit under that and learn. Okay, how did the apostle? You know, derive that. What was what, How did the apostle, under the Spirit's inspiration, pull that prophecy out and apply it to this particular situation? The rule is called the um, infallible rule of interpretation. That the Bible interprets itself. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It's not Pastor Boyd. It's not the elders. It's not the OPC. It's not even the Westminster Confession of Faith. The final authority, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the final authority is the Bible. Um, The Bible, you know, is our constitution. Um, How do we determine what the church shall teach? How do we determine how we'll worship? How do we determine how to live? How to spend our time? How to use our gifts? How to pursue our callings? How do we determine what to look for in a potential spouse? Uh, How do we raise our our children? And and there are hundreds of questions like these and the answer is the Bible so let me give you several applications here number one this is easy (laughs) at least simple not always easy but read your Bible (laughs) application number one read your Bible defending the Bible as the word of God is not a whole lot of profit in it if you aren't reading the Bible so read the Bible learn from the Bible, and meditate on, on on the Bible as well. We were talking after church this morning about, you know, I, I think we were taught well as Christians, uh, I certainly was as a new Christian, the importance of Bible reading. I think I probably wasn't as well instructed early on on the art of meditating on the Bible and, and the profitability that comes with not only reading broadly through the Scriptures, but pausing on a verse or two and really digging down for a few minutes on that verse, letting it roll over in, in my mind. So read the Bible and and meditate on it as well. Um, there is a problem, I think, in evangelicalism with biblical illiteracy. I was out at lunch this past week and um, got into a conversation with the waitress and um, began to talk found out she was a Christian what church she went to I won't name the church and I said, well tell me what what's your favorite what's your favorite Old Testament and New Testament verse and she really couldn't come up with one you know and and I thought boy that that's too bad you know that uh, as a Christian you can't just immediately think of some verses that have really meant a lot to you in, in your life there I think there's a problem with uh, biblical literacy in in the evangelical church today. Um, and th- th- there's a problem with the desire to learn the Bible. I think we're one of the few churches that's meeting right now in LaGrange. And that wasn't the case 28 years ago when I started. More churches had evening services with teaching and, and preaching. But um, more and more the, the churches that have a high view of the Bible are not, are, are not meeting. And, um, you know, what good is it to have a high view of Scripture? I mean, it's better than having a low view of Scripture. But, but practically speaking, you, you can testify that you believe the Bible to be inerrant and infallible, but, but if you don't read it, if you don't preach it, you don't teach it much, you know, what of what, what practical use is the doctrine of inerrancy to you? Um, if you ever read older sermons, which I encourage you to do from time to time, I think it's always helpful to step out of your own century and and look at what other people in different centuries were saying. And notice how many references they make. One of the things that really impressed me with the Puritans, and still does, is they would make these allusions to Old Testament references that were, what I would say today is would be considered obscure they, they have no problem with naming an obscure king or or something and expecting the congregation to know exactly who they were talking about and uh, i I really find that interesting i that maybe one of the reasons Puritans in some ways don't speak to our generation is that the Puritans had a level of of understanding in their own congregations. I think of the Bible you look at um, you know the the way they preach and you realize they they expected their congregation to know what they were talking about uh, when they made these references. They believed in plain preaching, but to them that was plain. And if, you know and I'm thinking, "Wow, what, what guy was that in the Old Testament, you know? Um, so also, I encourage family Bible reading. Secondly, in, in addition to the, that was application number one, read your Bible. Number two, family Bible reading. I think meal times are a very good opportunity. This is dads where you need to show leadership to take the, take the lead in reading the Bible as a family together out loud. One of the reasons I like reading the Bible, and sometimes I read the Bible out loud even though it's just me sitting at home, is because I think it causes you to slow down. Uh, when you read aloud, you have to slow down. You can't read as fast out loud as you do when you're just using your eyes and your mind. And... Um, and I think that can help. Number three, encourage your children to develop a daily habit of reading a chapter or two of the Bible each day. Number four, you know I'm an advocate of Bible calendars. Um, you don't want to make this some kind of you know idol in your life or self-righteousness. Look at all these chapters I've checked off. But it does help you systematically through the Bible. And I think we don't do that. Sometimes we may end up falling then into the trap of just reading what we like in the Bible, our favorite parts. And we're going to avoid Leviticus, and we're going to avoid you know Numbers, which Lincoln Duncan calls probably the worst you know in terms of marketing, the worst uh, title in the Bible. You know, the, just the idea of Numbers scares lots of people uh, away. Um, but to read those more arid portions of the Bible. Um, I have to admit, I struggle through the end of Ezekiel when Ezekiel's measuring every inch of the temple, and this cubit and that cubit, and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, you know. But, you know, it is, it is written there for a reason. And that's where, you know, I have to submit un- and put myself under the Bible. God has something to say to me, even about how many cubits the the uh, atrium is in the temple and the portico. Um. That those things are valuable. Then five, um, I encourage uh, hearing the Bible uh, on CD or iPod when you're traveling or driving. And um, you can get through a lot of chapters that way. Number six, pray for the Spirit's ministry in the reading of the Word. We are always dependent on the holy spirit to be the one who applies this to us. Remember these are things spiritually revealed second 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2. Number 7 young people teenagers don't allow religion professors to undermine your confidence in the bible. Romans chapter 1 tells us that man as a sinner has a natural bias against god. And so men have a bias against the Bible being the word of God. It's usually because they don't like things in the scriptures. They convict them of their sin and they want their sins. And so they choose sin. And they have, they're motivated to deny the Bible to be the word of God. Nobody's neutral when it comes to the Bible. Nobody is objective in themselves. It is God who is objective. It's the Bible that's objective. And it's the Bible that judges us. We don't sit in judgment of the Bible. The Bible sits in judgment of us. So recognize that if your professor is trying to show you how this passage conflicts with this passage and how this account of Genesis and creation conflicts with this account of creation or how this view of the resurrection conflicts with this, what are they trying to do? They're trying to show you that the Bible is not reliable but recognize that there's something at work within those men that puts them at antipathy to God and thus to his word. And so they, like Satan, uh, are lying and they are trying to dissuade people from submitting themselves to the word of God. Some men show their rebellion by getting drunk Others show their rebellion by committing adultery. And some show their rebellion by becoming religion professors and speaking lies about the scriptures. But it's the same fundamental problem. It's the same fundamental problem. I've quoted this to you a hundred times, but here's a hundred and first. You know, Spurgeon says, show me the man who doesn't believe the Bible to be the word of God and follow that man home. And I'll show you why he doesn't believe the Bible. Number eight, put your trust in the word of God. Jesus did. Jesus said that the man who listened to his word would be like somebody who built their house on a rock, on a a firm foundation. And when the storms of life come, and they will come, your house will still stand. And then lastly, remember that Jesus himself is called the Word of God. It's a title given to Jesus. And that says a lot about Jesus, and it says a lot about the Bible. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Word. We pray, O oh God, that we love your Word. We pray that we'd hide it in our hearts.